Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we live? We are live with Gross Anatomy Podcast, the show that explores the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it pertains to pop culture. And movies, TV, and books, and the whole world around us. And I am Dr. Jason Cohen, and my co-host, who's not so new, but new, is Rhea O'Neill from Montauk. That's right. That's right. And today we are joined by a friend, a colleague, someone I respect, someone who's actively on Instagram, and I, and I always enjoy looking forward to the Instagram posts, Dr. Shervin Ishagian. Nice to be with you, Jason. You too. And and you even, did you put on a tie for us, Dr. Shagian? I wear a tie every day, Jason. Don't you see me in the hospital? Yes, but I'm wearing a sweatshirt. I'm like totally informal today. Very nice. I'm in a sweatshirt. This is it's chilly. the Gross Anatomy podcast. You got to dress up for it. So first of all, I do very much enjoy seeing your Instagram posts. You're you know, not a lot of docs, especially our docs, are, are Instagrammers, right? Have you noticed that? 100%, yes. I was not, actually, it was the pandemic that brought me in. You know, it was, I remember the date, actually, it was like around March 2020, and we decided to shut down the office. And for a couple of days, I was just rounding in the hospital. And the hospital, if you remember back then, it became empty. Mm-hmm. Nobody was there. Exactly, exactly two years ago, pretty much. Yep, exactly. So right around that time, I had really half my day, I had nothing to do because I would go to the hospital and then I would come home and I didn't have an office to go to. I didn't have any patients to see. I would answer some phone calls, but that was it. And I'm like, you know what? Let me give this a try. And it was nice. And, you know, I built a nice audience. And then I started just reading. I remember I was on Twitter and I would read all the stuff that was happening in Italy and back in the East Coast and stuff. And there was just so much information that was coming out all at once. And I would just take bits and pieces that I thought were, you know, helpful information to just let people know what's happening without the commentary. Right. And that's when I started. And I remember I would walk around the hospital a few days later and people were telling me, hey, I like that stuff. Where did you get that from? That's great. Keep it up. And it was a big motivator. And I've just continued it ever since. And do you figure out the data yourself or you find it somewhere and then and then kind of curate it and put it on? Both. So I've gone to know, you know, sources or other people who are doing similar stuff on Twitter. And then I compile some of that with my own data that I gather either from CDC websites or LA County Health. And I put it together or if it's an interesting article, I just, you know, post the article and I try to, you know, um, presented in a fashion where the layperson would know, you know, I'm very involved with my community and it's not supposed to be like, you know, high grade medical stuff. There is some of that stuff there, but it's more for like, you know, the regular average Joe to be able to just look at a quick couple of posts and know what the big things are um, with COVID over the last couple of years. Well, I'm the regular average Joe, and I like seeing it. And I like the fact that it's, it's often a little bit of COVID and then a little bit of financial stuff to kind of think, to get you thinking a little bit. I like that. That's right. I've mixed it up a little bit recently. Yeah. I, I like the little finance. I'm like, huh, that's interesting stuff that you're putting out there. Yep. So, so let me, you know, it's funny when we first started and clearly we want to talk about cardiology and heart stuff, but when we first started doing this podcast, which 
believe it or not, was like three years ago, which is crazy um, to think that we've been doing it that long. One of the things that Lauren Taylor, who's now kind of more in an executive role, Ray replaced her. One of the concerns of Lauren was, well, two concerns. One was putting yourself as a, quote, serious doctor out on social media, you know, kind of opens you up to hate and criticism and, and kind of all that stuff. And so, so that was one concern. And then the other concern was she also was worried about just putting us out there to not be the, quote, serious doctor, you know, so getting hate and then not being portrayed as a serious doctor. And luckily, over the course of three years, we've realized it's okay to be a little silly or what. How's that been for you, though? Um, I definitely understand your sentiments. I, sh I, I had the same fear. You know, I was known as a cardiologist. Um, and you're a guy in a certain tie. So you're like a serious cardiologist. Yeah, that's right. And I was known as the serious guy. And, you know, I think at first it was a little bit easier just because if you go, if you go back to the mindset of March of 2020, we were all afraid, right? We had this thing that was coming. We saw what happened in Italy. We saw what was going on in the hospitals in New York. And everybody was afraid on the West Coast. And we all shut everything down. And we all kind of got together emotionally, right? We all remember like the Zoom sessions where we get together with friends and have a cocktail or something. Or, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot more harmonious at first, right? We were all in it together. And then as time went by, um, especially like around the time, like about a year ago when the vaccines came out and the controversies and stuff started coming out, it did become a little bit more challenging. I tried to just stay neutral. Like I said, I would just present the facts as facts without the commentary. And I have noticed that over, you know, maybe especially over the last six months, there is a lot more back and forth uh, as far as the commentaries on both sides. Um, and again, I've just tried to stay out of it. I just presented the facts. And I think that's what people understood that this is where they can get some facts. And with, again, with a little bit of humor, but again, no, it was more of a, like a serious stuff. Here's, here's the information. You decide what you want to do with it. I'm just presenting the information to you without any kind of bias. Are you getting any, have you gotten any hate? Hate is a strong word. Okay. I, I like, I'm a positive thinker. I have try to think any, positive. Negative. I've gotten negative replies. Yes. I've gotten people who say, oh, we're done with masks or vaccines are this or that, or kids shouldn't be vaccinated or, you know, we don't need a booster. And again, I just don't respond. I just keep on doing what I'm doing. But that that's just opinions. Have you actually had like anybody like tell you you're a fool or get off of this, you know, have you had it? Cause I've had that. I, I've had some of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, when you get that, but you also get the thank yous, you kind of know you're doing something right. And this is the society we live in today. You're not going to be able to satisfy everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, I help our local school here, um, you know, with a lot of their COVID policies. And what I always tell them is a good policy is a policy that you get controversy or you get, you know, a negative reaction from both sides. People think you're being too strict and also people think you're being too lenient. And that's when you kind of know when you're doing it right, when you, both sides are kind of unhappy and you just kind of stay in the middle and do what you think is right. That's good. That's like a, you know, a negotiation. You know, they talk about you, everybody's supposed to be a little bit miserable in negotiating. Nobody, nobody's supposed to be. Right. Then, you know, it's a good negotiation. That's right. Yeah. So uh, have you, have you gone to TikTok yet? 
as a no. as a media posting source? No, not yet. We have, and and that's that's been where we've gotten we got a lot of good stuff, but we also we've had to take some posts down, even believe it or not, because we've had. There's, yeah. So you're a heart doctor. I'm a heart doctor. Yes. Before we get into the specifics, how because we have a lot of med students or pre meds who listen to us, what a how did you decide to become a heart doctor? And then B, how long was your journey? All right. Uh, actually, you run something for the pre-med students, right? You run a program at Cedars-Sinai for many years, and it's a very popular program I hear. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for seven years. And uh, and that's something that we always talk about. It's the, the journey of the doctor right. you know, how, or the healthcare person, how they get to be where they are. So my journey into cardiology um, was not a straight path. I didn't go into medical school thinking I was going to be a cardiologist. I wanted to actually become an oncologist. Uh, and I did my research in oncology as a pre-med student uh, here at Cedars-Sinai. And then I went to Albert Einstein for medical school. And in the Bronx? The in Bronx, the Bronx. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. One of the Bronx. best years of my lo- life. I loved it. Um, but um, early on, I realized oncology was not for me for a variety of reasons. Uh, and then, so I just went, you know, through the first two years of medical you school. You decided to make your brother become the oncologist. That's right. My brother became the oncologist. I passed that on to him. Nice. Um, and then everyone gave me the advice that they say, you know, go through your first two years of medical school with an open mind. I finished my two years, you know, the first two years, very grueling years, probably, you know, academically, one of the toughest years of my academic career. And then I started my third year. And, you know, in third year of medical school, you go through different rotations, right? Every month or two, you switch from, you know, psychiatry to pediatrics to obstetrics, variety of fields. And I will go through each of these rotations. And at the end of it, I'm like, this is not for me. This is not for me. That's that's how it was for you. You you would do something and, and say this is because for me, it was the opposite. For me, it was. I like this. I like this. I could see this for you. Oh my God, no, it was the exact opposite reaction for me. Wow. I would go, I would, you know, I would be into it for like a week or so. And then I'm like, wow, psychiatry is tough. These people, I can't do this or surgery. I remember, you know, you're a surgeon. Um, I would go to first. I used to tell myself, these people get to the hospital really, really early. I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. Which is so interesting because now I come to the hospital with all the surgeons and anesthesiologists around 6 30 in the morning but i went through every rotation i remember my buddy and i my buddy was exactly like you he liked everything he couldn't figure out what to pick and i'm like i don't like anything wow and then i it came down to my last rotation and i'm like i don't know what i'm gonna do and i remember i was telling my buddies i really like i don't know like what what else is left for me and it was internal medicine and again you know internal medicine is a great great um, rotation as a third year student, because there's a lot of talking and discussion. And, you know, we were, I was at a county hospital in the Bronx where we got to do a lot of stuff. So I was really interested in that. But at the same time, I also knew that as an internist, right, it's not what I was going, I I knew that already from pediatrics and other rotations, that that's not what I was going to do long term. And I was lucky, literally the first day of my rotation, this cardiologist walks in, uh, his name was Marty Cohen, Dr. Cohen. And he said, hi, guys. No relation to me. No relation. No relation to you at all. Um, and he said, I'm your attending. 
And I was just fascinated by the physiology. Everything was like a story that made sense. Until then, a lot of my rotations, people said, oh, this is just how you do things. Why? Well, this is just how we do it. Or, you know, my teacher told me how to do it, I do it to do it this way. But he was like, nope, this is, this is the physiology. We do this and it does that, the cardiac output. And then not only that, everything was, there was a study for it. You know, we have this study and this trial that looked at 5,000 patients. They were randomized to two groups. And it became very, very interesting to me because I'm like, oh, this is very logical, very evidence-based. And again, his personality, the way he was with patients was just like something that captured me. And it ended up actually being a mixed blessing because from then on, my whole focus became cardiology. Um, and I've never looked back. And you were at Jacoby, right? That was the hospital? That was the hospital. Yeah, Jacoby Hospital and Weiler. Right. And, and then, I was at Kings County, which is like similar to Jacoby. Yeah. We both had similar kind of experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then at the, you asked me about the journey of how long it takes. So got the four, five years of undergrad. You have four years of medical school. And then I had to do a year of internship and another two years of residency. So that's three years of training right there. And then uh, you apply and then you do a fellowship and that's three-year fellowship. And then you can further subspecialize, you know, for another year or two after that. Did you do that? I did not do that. Um, I actually told myself, and that was another interesting conversation I had um, with my wife around that time is, I really wanted to go into private practice. Um, you're in private practice. You know how it is. I, you know, there's, I'm sure you had this in your career. There's a lot of people um, that discouraged me and they said the future of medicine, you have to be part of a big organization. And I told myself, you know what? I'm going to give myself two years. I called it my two-year subspecialty fellowship in private practice. And I will reevaluate at the end of two years. If at the end of two years, A, I enjoy what I'm doing, and B, if I'm good at it and my practice is successful, I'll continue doing it. And it was great. And if not, I could always try to go back and see if I can get a faculty position. And again, that was another one of those things that I took a huge risk coming out of fellowship, um, started my own practice here in the Beverly Hills area without a single patient. Um, and I just, you know, opened up an office with another cardiologist and I got some office space and just started growing a practice. And thank God it's been good. How many years has it been? Um, and this is my 12th year right now. Nice. Nice. So you talk about studies and, and I, over the last several years, we're going to touch upon COVID. We'll get there. And I'm sure Rhea has questions, but um, you made me think about um, being plant-based. And I'm, and I'm curious because there are some studies about, and I know there's some cardiologists who, who really, you know, especially talk about it. And I, there's a Dr. Roy Artal who turned me on, who's a pulmonary doctor, who's, who's like raw vegan and kind of turned me on to, to being plant-based and, and I strive for it. And I'm curious, you know, from your standpoint as a cardiologist and a study standpoint, what, what your thoughts are on that? Because for me, I read, uh, the book I read was um, the China study. That's you know, great. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm curious your thoughts on that as a so cardiologist. From a cardiology perspective and actually an oncology perspective, right. there's probably no better diet that you can be on than like a plant-based diet. Um, 
it's also the problem with it is it's also the most difficult and most challenging diet to be on. You really have to be motivated. Um, and so that's the hard part for, I think, for most people. As far as evidence, there are definitely studies um, that have shown benefit. The problem with it is they're not what we consider as like the highest caliber studies. They're not randomized control studies where you have one group that's, that's the only variable that's this different between them. You have one group that's on this, you know, uh, paleo diet and the other group that has a regular diet and then every other factor in their life is the same. It's a very, very hard study to do and there aren't good studies like that. Most of the studies are observational studies um, or retrospective studies where they looked at two groups of people who one group was on this diet and another group had a regular diet and then they do see a benefit. So there's definitely that, but it's not what we consider as the highest level of studies out there. But at the same time, I will tell you this, there is nothing negative about it, okay? So it's not going to like, you know, there's there's some evidence, for example, like a keto diet that could be harmful to your cholesterol or could put stress on your liver. There's none of that um, that we see here. And there's, again, a lot of observational retrospective studies looking back that have shown benefit. In my own practice, anecdotally, I could tell you I've had patients who've had, you know, uncontrolled diabetes high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight, obese, and they didn't want to do the medication way. They didn't want to do the surgical way where they get a gastric bypass or gastric, gastric sleeve. And they were highly, highly motivated. And they started these kind of diets. And from all the diets that I've seen, this has been the most successful. And I've literally seen people within six to 12 months, not just shed away weight, but also get rid of all these medications that they were on and really get rid of conditions like their diabetes gets, you know, I don't want to say cute, but they don't have diabetes anymore. Their blood pressure is well controlled without any medication. Their cholesterol is completely normal. So it's a phenomenal diet. And I congratulate you that you've been able to do it for so long. Um, well, I'm not, an, I'm not, I try to be a religious vegan, but I'm an irreligious vegan because I, <laughs> I occasionally cheat, not with meat because I kind of lost that taste, but I'll occasionally cheat with cheese and eggs. Those are kind of right, but again. So that's what I tell my patients. You also have to live life, right? If you're just living life where everything is strict, you lose a lot of enjoyment in life. And I think that's when actually becomes hard to do these things. If you call it cheating, but it's actually part of the plan where you say, I'm, you know, I'm going to, if I go out, I'm hanging out with some friends, I'm going to have a little bit of this, like in your situation, cheese. I think it actually motivates you to be able to keep it up the other 95% of the time. I think that's the right way of going about it. I think a lot of the dangers with that stuff is labeling. I think, you know, when someone feels like they have to be labeled a vegan or have to be labeled, you know, whatever it is, that's when it's harmful. But so what I tell people is I really strive. I, I, I like to use the word strive. So I say I really strive to be as plant-based as possible is, is kind of what I say. 100%. So do you, as a cardiologist, ever say to a patient, Hey, you need to go plant-based. What I tell them is I always like, okay. So whenever I have somebody who gets newly diagnosed with high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes, we're not talking about heart attack patients because those people really need to be on medications along with the lifestyle changes. But I'm talking about someone who's not had an event yet, who's not had a heart attack or a stroke, but they have these risk factors that pop up. Um, I always tell them, look, I'm not the type of doctor who likes to just prescribe you one medication after another. I'm going to give you the medication because we want this condition to be under control, but think about it as a band-aid, as a temporary solution. And the real solution is going to be what you're going to do. 
I want you to go find the diet that works for you or the exercise that works for you. Because again, not, not every diet is right for every person. And unless you really, really know that person, it's best to let them figure out and try a different couple of different things and figure out. I tell them at the end of the day, you really, really want to eat less than what you're eating right now, especially if they're overweight or obese. Um, and you want to eat higher quality foods. You want to include more fruits and vegetables. If you're eating a lot of junk food like chips, cake, ice cream, soda, get rid of that. That's the easy stuff. Um, easy is relative, but that's the stuff that will give you the highest bang for your buck. Um, if you do that, and then we can start seeing if we can actually wean you off your medications. And again, I think when you present it to patients like that, if you have their buy-in, I think that's where you can have the highest success. Rea, should we start getting controversial a little? Are we ready? God, I'm ready for the controversy. No, this is, you said cake, chips, and ice cream. And I'm like, oh God, I might have a heart attack soon, honestly. But in all seriousness, February is American Heart Month. You know, a time where we can all focus on our health and our cardiovascular health, most importantly. Um, because heart disease is a leading cause of death in the U.S. So taking the lives of more than 650,000 people each year. So we're super excited to have you on today. Um, and I have a couple of questions that I think a lot of us would love the answers to. Sure, go for it. The first being, and this might be a silly question to some, but some people really don't know, what are the common heart attack symptoms that men and women should be aware of? Sure. So that's actually a very good question because a lot of times people are having a heart attack and they chalk it up to something else like indigestion or anxiety, and they don't present themselves to emergency rooms or healthcare providers fast enough. And that could have deleterious effects. That could actually be harmful. So for most people, your typical symptoms are chest pain that's left-sided, usually associated with exertion. But if it's an acute event, if you're having a heart attack, it could just be if you're sitting there and watching TV. Shortness of breath is another one. Um, or you, you're doing an activity that you usually do. And that's why exercise is so important, because if you're exercising regularly, you pick these things up earlier on. And then you notice that, hey, this exercise that I was doing and I'm, I was comfortable doing now halfway through it, I can't do it anymore. I don't have the energy. I'm getting some chest pains. And those are usually warning signs of something going on. Now, interestingly enough, you asked about women. Women can have atypical symptoms. So they don't usually present uh, as classically as men do. For women, it could be, you know, an upset stomach, shoulder pain, just minor shortness of breath. And those could actually be what we call anginal equivalents or essentially the same symptoms of heart disease, but women present it differently. And usually women present um, later on because, again, they've chalked up some of these symptoms to something else. So that's something that they really have to be aware of. And I think if you're under a care of a regular doctor where you go in for regular checkups, these are some things that they could be asking you and checking for um, preventatively before it gets there. Why, now, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think that's because men are total wimps and fetches and they're like, hey, I, I have a little pain. Let's make a big deal. out." And women tend to like have no. babies and are tougher and they tend to like. No, no, no. no. Actually, I find it in my practice. It's the other way around. The men are the ones who just push it off. And they usually have a lot of men being dragged into the office by their wives. Right. Um, and say, hey, something's going on with my husband. Check him out. It's just the physiology. For what reasons we don't understand, women present differently. They have 
more atypical symptoms than men. Um, and because it's atypical, sometimes they think that it's not their heart. Um, but usually, at least what I found in my practices, the men are the harder ones to get to the office or to get them to test, get tested and stuff. The women are more conscientious about doing preventative screening. Do you often get people with, um, I guess, having a false heart attack? Like I've actually gone to the ER before and it was anxiety that I was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. All the time. Absolutely. But again, that's okay. It's okay. Actually, that's one of my favorite things that I tell people. When they come in, we see a lot of people with, with symptoms. So whether they have chest pains, shortness of breath and palpitations, and they're concerned and they want to know whether or not this is heart disease. And again, there's some easy office-based tests that we can do and we rule out the heart disease part. And it usually ends up being some sort of, especially in these day and age of COVID, it usually ends up being anxiety, some stressor in their life, something with a relationship, something in, in their job. But again, then, then, then once we do that, then once we rule out the heart disease and tell them it's anxiety, we actually take that opportunity and say, hey, let's look at you and see if you have risk factors or something in your history or something that would tell us whether or not you're somebody who would be at risk. And we try to actually take that opportunity to figure out if there's something we can do to prevent them from uh, having an event later on, even though these symptoms we've ruled out being a cause, uh, being caused by something that's related to their heart. So as an aside, I'll tell you this, in my practice, one of my favorite, favorite tests that I order uh, in people who like, you know, middle age or who have risk factors is test called a coronary calcium scan. This is a really cool test because it doesn't involve a lot of radiation, like a lot of tests uh, in, radio in cardiology do. It does not involve an IV, it's non-invasive, it's very, very quick. And it's a test that looks at the arteries of the heart and detects if there's cholesterol plaque building up in the arteries of the heart. And usually people who develop heart disease, they didn't develop it that day or that year. This is something that's going on for years and years and years, decades we actually say. Um, and after you know, a couple of decades, then you manifest yourself with having a heart attack. With this test, if done in an appropriate group of patients, we can detect signs of early heart disease 10 to 20 years before it becomes a problem. And we can then take that information and if we identify somebody who's at high risk, somebody who has absolutely no symptoms, but they have some risk factors like a family history, or they used to be a smoker, or they're overweight or something, and we can determine whether or not they are going to be, they are building up cholesterol plaque in the arteries of their heart. And if they are, we can take preventative aggressive action. And there are studies that show that if you do that, then you can actually prevent that first heart attack and stroke. Really? Rhea, I want to know what happened when you went to the ER. So they told me that it was anxiety, but I also had, oh gosh, it's called costochondritis. Yeah. So, and that was from, I, I, I don't know, it could have been from lifting weights or just from stress. Like, I thought I was dying. I was like 22 years old. <laughs> and you it called me like Yeah. Now I get it every now and then. And I, I'll notice it like when I'm feeling very stressed and I'm like, okay, I'm not dying. I'm just stressed. What are you stressed about? Huh? Life. Come on. I know. Life's tough. It's so are we. Jason, you never look stressed. What's your trick? I'm always stressed. I, I just carry it weirdly very weirdly you're always smiling when i see you thank you and but i'm always in a mask these days how do you even know i'm gonna pretend that's true okay 
There you go. <laughs> you are always smiling. Happy to be here. Are you familiar with um, Bob Harper from Biggest Loser, the Biggest Loser coach? And a few years ago, he was 51 years old and it could be known as one of the most fit men on earth, Biggest Loser coach. And he had a heart attack after working out, after running on the treadmill. Again, it's very interesting because you could be completely fit, right? And for reasons that might not make sense, meaning you don't have high blood pressure, you don't have high cholesterol, but you could be building for genetic reasons. You could be building plaque in the arteries of your heart. And all you need is people think that a heart attack is a plaque that builds from 10% to 20 to 30 to 40 and go on and on and on. And then one day you get a heart attack. In fact, it's actually not like that. What happens is all you need is as long as there's a plaque in the artery, let's say it's even only 20% of your artery has that plaque. The plaque could rupture for reasons we don't understand. Stress definitely plays a role in it. And that plaque in a matter of hours to a couple of days can start clotting using the clotting factors that are in the blood and go from a 20% blockage to a 90 or 100% blockage. And if it's a 100% blockage and you don't have a lot of symptoms, let's say you're asleep or some people just don't feel it, that's a heart attack. So that you know causes sudden cardiac death. That's actually one of the leading causes of cardiovascular death in younger people. Now, other times people misuse the term heart attack. They say, oh, this guy died of a heart attack. He was running on a treadmill and he you know, passed out and died and he must have had a heart attack. There are other reasons that that could happen. So you can die of an electrical problem of the heart. So it doesn't have to be a blockage. You know, we always think about a heart attack as a blockage in the arteries of the heart. You can have an electrical problem with your heart, something that might not manifest with your typical symptoms that we just talked about earlier, because those are heart attack symptoms. Um, but for what, again, reasons we don't completely understand, genetic reasons usually are something you were born with that for whatever reason, trigger an abnormal heart rhythm. So an electrical problem, think about all of a sudden like there's an electrical storm in the heart and the heart is beating irregularly and fast that it can't pump blood to the rest of your system and you just collapse and die. That's again, also called sudden cardiac death. And that's another reason why younger people die. And they just, they call it a heart attack, but it wasn't the true sense of the heart attack. And we wow. tend to see that in, in young, healthy, fit athletes, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I actually, I remember this very, very clearly. There was a young patient, very healthy, fit guy. He was in the gym. And just like the story that you said, he was on a treadmill and he was running and he passed out. He collapsed. Now, luckily, in this gym, there was must there was somebody who obviously saw this, recognized this, and this gym was equipped with a portable defibrillator, we call an AD. And so they put it on him. It detected exactly what we just discussed, that irregular heart rhythm, and it shocked him. So they were able to resuscitate him, get him into a hospital, and you know he's alive now. He's got a defibrillator to protect him from this ever happening again, but his life was safe. If this happens to you while you're asleep, a lot of times you just die in your sleep. Is there a way to predict who's at risk for that or, no, or we still have no clue? Very good. Yeah, there are. So for some of them, there are a simple EKG can identify. There's abnormalities that you see on the EKG for you know the med students or the doctors on this um, podcast. You can look at the QT interval. Right? No, no, but what I mean is, is like, Oh, uh, Joe Schmo has, uh, 
you know, genetic da da da, he, he's a risk, or or is there, you know, just by looking at someone, not by doing it. Uh, no, any, you can't look at someone and tell or them by that. blood or by genetics or by is there is there some? Yes, there are blood tests that I could identify genetic abnormalities that are associated with sudden cardiac death, and those are because we now know the genes, some of the genes that could put you at risk of having these things. And there's genetic, there's genetic tests that you can do that could check for that. Okay, I'm going to ask controversial stuff now. So there are those who stay, we're talking, I'm getting into COVID a little bit. And I, and I know you're, you're a bit of a COVID. I don't know if, if you mind, if I use the word expert, but you, you certainly know a little bit about what's going on with COVID, or at least you're good at reporting COVID data. On, sure. on your Instagram. So there are those that are saying that there's an increase in young, spontaneous athlete death. And they're attributing, they're saying there's an increase in that. And maybe it's because of either COVID itself or long COVID or COVID vaccine or whatever. And so do you know anything about that? Have you seen anything about that? Is it both a myth? Is there any truth? What? So first of all, everything that we're seeing, you know, about vaccination stuff and COVID, you have to understand in medical timelines, it's all relatively new, right? We're talking about two years worth of information. So I think there's a lot that we want to say that we know, but we don't really know because there hasn't been enough time that's passed for us to be able to analyze this data. Having said that, I could tell you, there are no studies that that I'm aware of at least that have shown an increase, you know, like what you were describing, you know, incidents of adverse events of people who were vaccinated versus people who were not vaccinated. Sure, there are reports that in younger, especially men, there is an increased incidence of myocarditis right? Inflammation of the heart muscles um, after COVID or after the receiving the vaccine. Um, and again, the data that I'm aware of shows that the rate of that happening after COVID is still higher. And by higher, I'm not talking about a little bit, significantly higher than the rate of incidence of that event, the myocarditis after vaccination. Now, again, this is all relatively short period of time that we've studied these things. I think over time, we will know more and more. And again, the other thing we have to, that at least I've understood over the last two years is that not all COVID are the same. Um, What do I mean by that? We've had four waves so far, five by some people's accounts, and each of them had a different variant. So for example, when we had Delta, right, in at least in California, we, we got hit with that around August and September time, even though we had better diagnostic tools and better treatment tools, and we had a vaccine, right? The people who got Delta really, really suffered. uh, And they had a lot of comorbidities, especially the unvaccinated, right? But then we got Omicron and Omicron, right? Was completely different than Delta. So when it came to Omicron, you could get COVID and you could be unvaccinated, and you still did well. In fact, a lot of people that I follow, you know, call it like the natural vaccine, right? Because it wasn't as virulent. It didn't cause as much hospitalization or morbidity or mortality like Delta or some of the prior um, variants caused. So that's why the other thing I caution people is when you say, oh, COVID is not that bad or COVID is terrible, it really, really depends which strain you're talking about. 
are we still seeing all strains or we're really only seeing now Omicron? So again, not everybody who gets COVID, they do sequencing to find out what they have. They do a random, so the CDC and, you know, like the LA Public Health, they sequence a random set of patients. And based on that, they could determine the distribution in the population. And Omicron, when Omicron first started, it was like, you know, single digit percentages of cases of COVID around like end of November, beginning of December. And very, very quickly it became the dominant strain. And by like January, it was like, I think above 75%. And in some communities, it was even greater than 90% of all cases. And I think that's what's really helped a lot of communities develop herd immunity in people who are either not vaccinated or not boosted or even kids. And I think as science, one of the things that we didn't really do a good job on was recognizing and studying the effects of natural immunity, right? I, and I think that's where a lot of controversy started because we, we, we really ignored how much protection people get from getting COVID itself. That's called natural immunity. You get it and your body builds immune response to it, just like if you were to get chickenpox if you were a kid. And we kind of pushed that in the side and we really focused on pushing vaccination, which again, it was great. I mean, that was a great savior, saved countless numbers of lives by having this vaccine available to us, but we ignored natural immunity. And, you know, we would say people who were vaccinated can have certain rights, but the same rights were not afforded to people who had natural immunity. And I think that probably turned a lot of people off. And I think we could have done a better job. And I think in retrospect, again, after some years have gone by, when we look back at this time, that's one of the things that I think we could probably pinpoint and say, this is something we could have done a better job of. Yeah. And it sounds like that's why we're getting close to having mask mandates lifted because between the vaccinated and the natural immunity people, it sounds like it's a huge percentage at this point or enough, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I, would, I think, again, I, I look at, I'll give you another example. Like uh, in one of the schools that um, that's a local school here, I think between the vaccinated and the people who've gone COVID, I think the last numbers that I looked at, about two thirds of the school had some sort of immunity, whether through vaccination or having had COVID in the last couple of months. And again, that's that's a lot of immunity to have. So if there's a virus going around, it needs a host to live in. It needs to travel from me to you to Raya. And think, pretend there's 20 of us in this link. If one of us has protection, either from natural immunity or from a vaccine, I can't pass that virus to, the, to you because you have protection and that virus stops because it doesn't have another host to go to. Now, if Rhea comes along and she's unprotected, now my virus can go to Rhea and it could now live in her and now she could spread it to somebody else. But if we're in a community where the virus doesn't have a lot of options to go to, then it just dies in me right after my body fights it off. And that's it. And that's what we're seeing right now that there's so many people who have immunity that the virus is just doesn't have, cannot find another host to go living. Another question for you, deviating from medicine for a second. Um, so you're also a business guy you were talking about. 
Um, I have two questions about that. So do you, do you also do business stuff? Are you, uh, did you get an MBA? Did you wish you had an MBA? And then part three is, were you an early uh, buyer of cryptocurrency? <laughs> um, one of my biggest regrets in life is when I was at Einstein, they had a combined program with Columbia where I think you actually within a year, I don't even think it was two years. I'm not sure. It was a long time ago. But whether it was one or two years, they had an MBA combined program. And wow. I really, really, really wish I had done that. Um, now, again, having said that, I know what people learn in MBA school. And I've l- studied a lot of those texts myself. So at least I give myself some credit for doing that um, and having learned that. Um, as far as business ventures, yes, I've tried to keep my interest outside of medicine, just like, you know, you got the gross anatomy and stuff. I've had, I have some, um, business interests or entrepreneurial, um, things that I've done with other people on by myself. And as far as cryptocurrency, no, I've not ventured into it. I'm very, very conservative and it's a little bit too risky of an asset. So when I think about like a portfolio that you'd be managing for yourself or for other people, that's like the risky part, right? And you should have some risky part um, in your portfolio. It is not in my portfolio. I think for younger people, it's something to consider. But if you're in the mode of capital preservation, I don't know how much of a role that, that plays. That's more for if you're trying to do capital appreciation and you're trying to be aggressive. One thing that at least I'll tell you as an aside, since now we're veering off of cardiology and medicine, people used to think about it as an, as an inflation hedge or as a market hedge. So investors are always looking for an asset class that's decoupled from another asset class. So let me tell you, what does that mean? So if you have the stock market, right, those are called equities going up, investors want to have a hedge. They want to own another asset so that in case one thing is going up or one thing is going down, they could hedge it by another having another asset that goes up. And that's what cryptocurrency was thought of initially, that it could be a hedge against equities. So if the stock market goes down, cryptocurrencies should go up. Or if inflation goes up because we're printing too much money, because there is a finite amount of crypto cryptocurrencies out there, that that could actually hedge inflation. One thing that we've seen in the last couple of months where there's been evidence of inflation popping up in the economy as high as even 10% year over year, and there's been volatility in the equities market, like in the stock market, we've actually seen that cryptocurrencies have paralleled the activity in the stock market. So as stocks went down, cryptocurrencies went down and vice versa. So it didn't prove to be a hedge as an uncorrelated asset, and it did not prove to be an inflation hedge at least now, again, it's early, uh, and obviously things could change. Uh, and again, I think about it like when there was the internet, right? There were all these internet companies. You know, you think about pet.com and all these things that came and went bust. But then there were the Googles and Amazons that stayed on. And when we talk about cryptocurrencies or blockchain, I think the technology is going to be there. Whether or not Dogecoin or Ethereum or, you know, Bitcoin is going to be the winner. I'm not so certain about it. And again, it's a very risky asset. So it's a little bit too risky for my appetite. So one thing that I actually just recently said to someone, I don't remember who it was, is that I think doctors are the, sometimes are the dumbest smart people I've ever met. It's like, 
you know, we we're obviously you have to be smart to get into medical school and become a doctor. But for the most part, you're like a rare guy that actually bothers to think about business and and retirement. And the, like we have no right. At least when I went through it, there was no education and no no clue about how to prepare for life after medicine or in addition to medicine. Do, do you agree with that? Are you seeing it being better? It's or? Very interesting. And I don't think it's because of lack of knowledge or lack of ability. You know, the, I'm sure you noticed the doctors that you're around are probably one of the, some of the most brilliant people you've ever met, right? I mean, again, think about what it took to get into medical school and everything else we talked about. I think the problem is that you become so tunnel vision. You're just focused on one thing for so many years that you lose sight of everything else. So it's not because of lack of ability. It's a lack of training, really. And again, we as educators do a really, really bad job. You know, I really think when you're in medical school, there should be a couple of courses that tell you about these things because these are this is real life stuff. But again, nobody does it. I actually remember... In my third year of residency, we wanted to have a class trip at the end of the year, and we wanted the program to sponsor it. And we went to our program director, and we said, listen, we want to have a class trip. We don't want anything extravagant. We just want to go to Palm Springs. And, you know, we just want to go for a couple of nights. Can the program pay for it? And the program director said, well, there has to be some educational component. Come up with some proposals of, you know, during the day, maybe you can have, you know, a few hours of educational stuff and we could, you know, we can go under that. So I, you know, we got together with some of our friends, obviously the easy, again, low hanging fruit was your third year resident, let's have some board prep. So we each prep like an hour lecture about different topics. And I said, you know what? I want to do something different. I volunteered to give a lecture on, um, financial planning for physicians, retirement planning, stuff that you were talking about. And so we went through the board stuff and I was the very last lecture on the very last day. And I got up and I gave this PowerPoint presentation about, you know, retirement and different options and how people should be investing and stuff. And everybody afterwards was like, wow, we didn't even know some of these things existed. And I actually remember the program director came up to me and asked me, and for the next few years, I came back to that retreat that they had, the annual retreat, and gave the same talk. And again, every time I talk to people, and I, I talk to like junior doctors right now, nobody, it's not because they're not smart enough to know it. When you tell them they understand it, it's just there's been no education and no preparation. And unfortunately, what happens is doctors make money and they're interested in investing it. And there are a lot of people who take advantage of that because they know doctors have cash flow and they know they have access, but they also know what you know. We just said is that they don't have a lot of financial training, and a lot of people take advantage of that. And that's one of the really, really sad things that I see in medicine right now. And I really do blame it on ourselves. Like as educators, we got to do a better job at training doctors. Yeah. There's no training, but I think it should it should even go back to college. Like there there should be part of like if you're going to college, there should be required, you know, business education, you know, practical business education. Absolutely. There's nothing in high school. There's nothing in college. That, that's what I was actually going to say. So you yeah. you asked me about doctors, so that's why I focus on doctors. Right. No, I know. absolutely within the system. I actually think it should be in high school. I think yeah. there should be courses in high school because again, you have to understand. There are 
a good percentage of people who go to high school and that's it, or they might go to one or two years of college and that's it. High school is really the opportunity to teach simple stuff, you know, how to have a bank account, credit card, interest rates, you know, FICA scores, um, how to get a, apply for a mortgage. What does it take to be able to apply for a mortgage? You did know, you know, any of that, Rhea? Did you, did you, do you I know that stuff? In ninth grade or 10th grade, I took an accounting really, really entry level because I'm horrible with like numbers. I can barely tell you eight plus seven without my fingers, but it was like how to like write a check and like balance a checkbook. And like, I wish I did do more of that. Right. But you had to actually take a class yeah. to, get, to get such a simple thing. I think it should just be a standard thing. You know how like public school has, you know, sex education. There should be just life education. Right. Yeah. Just simple things in life that you need to know that are probably just as important, if not more important than, you know, some of the stuff you learn in history and social studies and even math, I would even say. That's a great show, by the way. Sex Education. Have you seen that show? <laughs> yes, I have. I was going to ask, what shows do you watch? Movies, yeah. TV shows? What are you watching now? I watch a lot of stuff. I love Billions. Billions is a great show. Do you guys watch Billions? I watched the first season of it and the beginning of the second season and kind of lost, uh, lost really? my interest. Yeah, but the first so season I, I, I thought was great. It, really, really well done. Um, and right now I'm just started the latest season of Ozarks. So I'm watching that. Um, I watched a lot of different things. We just, I, we were, we just finished the last episode. It, it's only six episodes or something. I don't know. I'm on episode five. I don't know how many. Oh, you're lucky. Episodes. It's only like a part one. There's going to be like a part two, but who knows when that's coming out. So it's a little depressing how long we're going to have to wait for that. What else do you watch? So I start my day every morning. I watch CNBC as I'm getting ready to go to work. So that's like where I get like my financial news and stuff. And then in the afternoon, um, I'm usually whatever is on Netflix. So I'm, you know, when I'm doing my elliptical, I have the Netflix in front of my iPad and that's what I'm tuning into. So whatever is the recommended top thing, I watch it. I watch, you know, whatever's there I've watched. Got it. Are you watching Succession also? I watched Succession, yeah. I didn't see the, the, the most recent season yet. Did you watch Succession, Rhea? I'm on season one, so don't spoil anything. Yeah. yeah. The it's acting great. is very, very well done in Succession. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is great. Any, any uh, Rhea, any other questions for Dr. Shagian? Gosh, no, I just, I mean, you kind of touched into it, but so as far as a healthy diet to prevent heart disease or a heart attack, is plant-based the way to go or just clean eating fruits and veggies? So I think the best, you know, plant, I don't really like to say anything is the best. There's a lot of, the, what's best is whatever you can really do to match your lifestyle. But I think the more fruits and vegetables that you have, the less junk food, all the good stuff for you that you really wanted, right? The ice creams, the soda, the chips and cake and stuff. You really got to eliminate that. Um, and then red meat, right? You got to really, really limit your red meat, include fish, a um, little bit of chicken, but red meat is like a big no-no. Again, doesn't mean you should never have it, right? You could be great like Jason and say, okay, I don't have a taste for it, but you got to live life. But really, really true. I try to limit red meat consumption. Well, it's funny. I used to be a huge carnivore. I love meat. Like I need a steak all the time and stuff. And then I married a pescatarian. So, you know, it just wouldn't be in the house that much because my wife wasn't into it. So 
I had to go out of my way to eat meat and stuff. And then, then I became, you know, a plant-based striver. And now it's, it's crazy when I think that I, I don't really want to eat meat. It's, it strikes me as so bizarre, but that, that I, you know, I laugh at myself. Like I've become that weird guy. I kind of want to say, you know, but it's not weird. Say healthy. Exactly. Healthy, weird guy. Do you want to tell us any other COVID insight, even though we're kind of COVID exhausted, as as you told me before? I think we're COVID exhausted. I would just tell you or your audience, especially if you have any pre-med students, that if you have a passion for medicine, you're going to have a lot of obstacles along your way. Don't let them deter you from your passion. I really, really think for someone who's passionate Medicine is a great field. You will find so many different ways to apply medicine, to make the career unique for yourself. Um, I mean, Jason, if you think about what you do, right? You're pretty unique, right? You have this great thyroid specialty. You're an expert in thyroid and parathyroids. And there's so many different things you could do with medicine. So I would say, don't give up on your passion. Don't let the challenges get to you. It is a very, it shouldn't be like this, but unfortunately it's a very, very difficult and long road. Um, But at the end of it, it is worth every minute, every hardship you put into it. I could not imagine myself doing anything else. As much as an interest I have in finance and other stuff, I really enjoy my day seeing patients in clinic. Are you going to, how old are your kids? My kids are 10 and eight. Do you think you'll encourage them, discourage them to go into medicine or stay neutral? I will let them decide as time goes by. I think they're getting enough encouragement just by me being around, right? They they see me, they come to the office. I think that's a lot of encouragement. I don't need to push them more. Um, I think it's just you have to see what what their interests are. It, I, I really, if you push people, whether it's your kids or anybody else, to do something they're not passionate about, they're not going to be successful in it. And I think you probably see that around, like, right with our colleagues, that the ones who did it for the wrong reason are miserable, upset, everything gets to them. Whereas those of us who really, really enjoy what we're doing, we have challenges also. But you just take on the challenges you realize as part of the job, and you enjoy your day and you move on with it. Yeah. The one thing, you know, you talked about bringing your kids to the office. One of the great, fun things for me pre-pandemic was... Although my kids are older now, I used to bring them to the hospital when they were little, uh-huh. you know, to make rounds with me. And they used to, you know, they they loved it. And the nurses would love playing with them and hanging out with them. I don't know if that'll ever come back. I don't yeah. know if we'll ever because of COVID and just life. I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that, really. Hopefully we'll go back. We got to go back. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right, Dr. Shagian, you're amazing. Yeah. Thank you for being on this. Guys, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Good. I didn't know where we were going to go. But I we didn't know to, either. We went to good places. We went where the heart uh, led us. What's that? Oh, that was good. Say that again, Rhea. That was the joke you would say. I said we went where the heart led us. Nice. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.